Warning, the following presentation is rated R for Reformed. All theological content will be accompanied by the five solas, strong and explicit Calvinistic language, persuasive argumentation, and repeated references to sovereignty. This episode may be dangerous for your Arminian friends and family. You have been warned. Well, greetings and welcome to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. I am your host, uh, Jason Mullet. Uh, you can visit our website at logicalbelief.org. Uh, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can just search for Logical Belief, and uh, you can follow us there. You can also find us on iTunes from your favorite uh, mobile device, and uh, uh, subscribe to our feed there and listen to just the audio there. Uh, if you also just want to go to our website, and on the top right of the menu bar, uh, just click on podcast. You can see both the audio and the video there, and you can watch us and listen to us from there and keep track of what's going on. Uh, you can drop me an email at jason at logicalbelief.org. And uh, if you can, uh, if you want to send me a word of encouragement, you can just send me an email. Uh, however, if you do send me an email, just be aware you are permitting me to read it on the air. You can also reach me on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, so there's lots of different ways to get in touch with us. So as you could tell by the intro, by the warning, uh, we are continuing on our series on the doctrines of grace today. And uh, the subject of today's, uh, on the doctrines of grace, is limited atonement, or as uh, I w would prefer to call it is particular redemption, but uh, limited atonement does fit into the acrostic tulip, so that's uh, one of the reasons we call it that. I don't I don't necessarily have a problem with the term, um, but uh, it is it sometimes uh, misrepresents what the doctrine really does teach. Uh, we, we don't believe that uh, with limited atonement that Christ's sacrifice uh, was not sufficient in and of itself uh, to accomplish salvation for all people, but that simply was not the intention that God had with the atonement. So <clears throat> that's why uh, sometimes the acrostic can uh, can create some issues uh, in order to try to, to keep up with the acrostic tulip. So uh, limited atonement, particular redemption, uh, is the topic of discussion today. So... As we jump into it here, I want to, as I've done in the previous podcasts um, on this subject, I want to go into a clear and concise definition of what limited atonement is, and then we'll build off of that and we'll go into the scriptural basis for it and show how it ties into the rest of the doctrines of grace and how they are systematically the work of God in accomplishing salvation for his people. Uh, <clears throat> so, but however, I, I do want to, for, for those of you that maybe jumped in uh, just on this particular podcast, I would really encourage you to go back to the beginning, go back to the very first one, and listen to them in succession. Uh, on the, uh, the first episode that we had on the Doctrines of Grace was on the sovereignty of God. And I would encourage you to start with that because it's very important for us 
to start with God in these types of discussions because the one thing that uh, monergism or uh, Calvinism is, it's a theocentric, it's a God-centered theology. It starts with God, his purposes, um, how he accomplishes all that he pleases and desires, um, his eternal decree. Um, it comes from his attributes and his nature. And whereas synergism or Arminianism or semi-Pelagianism or Pelagianism or, or whatever other aberration there is from the true biblical uh, teaching on this is uh, <clears throat> they will start with a a man-centered. They'll start with an anthropology that involves man's free will. And they don't take into account that uh, the Bible does not teach that man has libertarian free will. Um, man, uh, by his nature, fallen in Adam, is depraved, um, is unable um, to do anything that is meritorious to God. So therefore, his nature and his will is not free. Um, you'll have to go back and listen to the episode on total inability or total depravity in order to uh, to see the fullness of what the Bible says about that. Okay, well, let's uh, just go ahead and jump into today's topic with the definition, and uh, we'll define here what limited atonement is. Uh, this doctrine, this is the definition, by the way, that I have written up on my website on logicalbelief.org. Uh, there is an article there entitled, Is Calvinism Biblical? I will link it in the uh, notes uh, for this podcast so you can go and check that article out. And in there, I have the definitions for each of the doctrines of grace. So this is the definition I have on the website for limited atonement. This doctrine teaches that the atonement of Christ on the cross was intended for and applied to the elect of God. It means that Christ completely saved certain individuals at the cross. This atonement was particular in its intention and effect, but sufficient for all. This doctrine does not teach that Christ's sacrifice was incapable of saving all people, but that it was not intended for all people. Now, <clears throat> this particular doctrine can get uh, uh, some non-reformed, uh, non-monergistic people um, a little riled up. It is often when, when people come to understanding the doctrines of grace, it is often one of the last um, pins that the Holy Spirit uh, topples uh, uh, in order to bring somebody to the understanding of God's sovereignty in salvation. Uh, so many people today uh, uh, purely have a view of atonement based upon tradition and based upon, uh, you could almost say, urban myth uh, that has uh, just uh, permeated the church for the last uh, 100 or more years and has... And so, so they simply view the atonement from uh, statements made by pastors and, and not from a, a clear 
and careful studied exegesis of the of the text of scripture so the one thing that i want to do as we as we get started off on this is <clears throat> i do want to bring up a couple points and that is that whether you're an arminian or you're a calvinist either way you do limit the atonement now we just don't limit it in the same way where both calvinists and arminians would agree is that we both agree that Christ's atonement was sufficient for all people. So we agree on that. We also agree that the effect was only for many and not for all people. And so we do have an agreement there. So we, we agree as both Calvinists and Arminians that Christ's atonement was sufficient for all and effectual for only many. Where the contention comes into play is the intention of God in the atonement. The Calvinist would say that God's intention was consistent with his effect. In other words, what actually is accomplished is also what God intended. The Arminian would say that God intended to save all people with the atonement, but that it is effective only among many people because the almighty will of man is the final determiner of whether the atonement is effective or not. So <clears throat> as a monergist and as a Calvinist, uh, my position is biblically, that God accomplishes everything that he purposes to accomplish. This is Isaiah 46, 9. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So from a biblical perspective, if it's God's intention and purpose to save all people, then all people would be saved. But because we see that effectually only certain people are saved, then that was also God's intention. Uh, we do not separate the intention of God from the effect in his creation. Um, in Psalm 135, verse 6, it says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. So we just biblically cannot say, we cannot separate the intention from the effect. As Steve Lawson says, the extent of the atonement, the extent of the atonement, which is the effect, is defined by the intent of the atonement. And we'll get into <clears throat> all the scriptures on this. So, just to be clear, we all do limit the atonement in the effect, where the contention is, um, is in the uh, intention of God with the atonement. Um, so and the other thing that we want to do as we get into discussion of atonement is we have to, first of all, understand what is atonement? What does the word actually mean? And we'll look at also another word, uh, propitiation. So atonement, according to the dictionary, is a satisfaction or reparation for wrong, injury, 
or amends. It's not the, the one thing that we have to understand is that atonement is not a possible or potential satisfaction or reparation. It actually accomplishes that. Um, and propitiation is the other word we want to look at is to make favorably inclined, appease, conciliate. So propitiate has the same and the same understanding is that it actually is an accomplishment. It's not a potential. It actually accomplishes that which it is it is doing. Um, it actually does appease. It actually does conciliate. It does make God favorably inclined. Um, and the atonement is exactly the same way. Uh, the The word atonement in Hebrew um, is comes from the word kafar, and it means to cover, purge, uh, make reconciliation. Uh, also means to cover with pitch, uh, to coat or cover with pitch, to cover over, uh, pacify, to propitiate. To cover over, atone for sin, to cover over, atone for sin and persons by legal rights. Um, so, as we can see just by the definition itself, it actually accomplishes something. The act of atonement actually does cover and and uh, propitiates for sin. Um the Greek word for uh, atonement, and it's only actually used, I believe, only once in the New Testament uh, in Romans. Um, it is the word katelage, uh, katelage, and it means uh, in in the Greek it means uh, an exchange um, uh, of the business of money changers, exchanging equivalent values. Um, an adjustment of a difference, a reconciliation, a, a restoration to favor. Uh, Vine says in the New Testament, the restoration of the favor of God to sinners that repent and put their trust in the uh, exp expiatory death of Christ. Um, so uh, the word katelage actually means that the death of Christ expiates um, our sin in reference to God. It restores us in favor to God. It actually accomplishes that. For example, in Romans 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So we have that peace, that shalom. We have that, that uh, situation with God, that we are in a favorable relationship with God, <clears throat> and that relationship cannot be affected. It has been appeased for. It has been atoned for. It has been propitiated for. We were formerly enemies of God, but now he calls us friend, and we are at peace with him. Uh, <clears throat> the term propitiation is, uh, is used a few times also in the New Testament, and it comes from the Greek word hilasimos, and it means an appeasing, a propitiating, the means of appeasing. So it's an appeasement. It's a satisfaction. Uh, it, and it's actually an accomplishment of that. So, uh, to understand atonement uh, more clearly, we should go to the Old Testament and look at how uh, atonement was done in the Old Testament. And one of the first uh, examples we can see of 
of an atoning sacrifice being limited to a particular people uh, is in the Passover itself. In Exodus 12, verse 22, um, Yahweh instructs the children of Israel. Uh, I'll start reading at verse 22. In Exodus chapter 12, it says, Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord has given you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. So we see here that the Passover, which Jesus is referred to as our Passover lamb, we see here that in the Passover that happened in Egypt, a lamb was sacrificed and its blood was put on the doorposts and God passed over. He overlooked his people, the children of Israel. But the Passover lamb was not for the Egyptians. It was limited to God's people. And see, that's exactly what we, <clears throat> it was intended for, and it was limited to God's people. That's exactly what we, as, as <clears throat> uh, those who believe in the doctrines of grace and believe in the doctrine of limited atonement, believe that <clears throat> Christ's sacrifice was intended for and limited to God's people. In the same way as we see an example in the Old Testament, where it was not intended for the Egyptians <clears throat> but it was only intended for God's people, the children of Israel. We also see in Leviticus 16 <clears throat> is where God lays out the instructions for uh, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And <clears throat> he be begins in verse 15. It says, it says, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people. And he's speaking specifically of the Jewish People, the children of Israel and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat thus he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel notice how it's limited here to God's people the people of Israel because of their transgression all their sins so shall he do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. <clears throat> so you notice here that the sacrifice was not made for the Egyptians. It was not made for the Amorites. It was not made for the Canaanites. Uh, it was not made for the Edomites. It was made only for the children of Israel. It was limited to the children of Israel. Its intention was only for the children of Israel. So, one of the things 
that we have to recognize when we have this discussion and when we and when we look at scripture and if we're going to take scripture seriously and if we're going to believe that scripture is consistent in itself is we have to understand um, a few things and I call this the many versus all argument there are I believe there's three texts in the New Testament that uh, use the term when uh, seemingly referring to Christ's sacrifice, his propitiation, uh, that it would be saying that it is for all people. However, we have to look at that context. And one of the most common texts where this is done is in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 which uh, is a very common one for Arminians to go through. But, however, I don't believe that this verse um, is really in their favor at all. Um, It says, uh, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So we'll look at that contextually. But what we have to recognize is um, is that many, the term many, which we will see is used often in Scripture uh, in reference to the extent of the intention of the atoning work of Christ, that it was intended for many. There's, there's uh, no pun intended, many places in Scripture where it says this. So many can never mean all without distinction. And if we say, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that it means all men without distinction, without, uh, with no distinction at all, then this would contradict all the scriptures that say that, that the atonement of Christ was intended only for many. Because many has no possibility, the term many has no possibility of ever meaning all without distinction. Um. But all with distinction, if, it, if it's in the context, all with distinction can and does mean many. So all can mean many, but many can never mean all, all without distinction. So I'll give some examples here. Like all dogs uh, cannot ever, if you say all dogs, cannot ever mean many dogs. But all the dogs at the kennel does mean many dogs. So notice how there is a distinction being made on on the extent of all the dogs. And another statement, many dogs cannot mean all dogs. It, it cannot, um, uh, because there's no distinction being made with all dogs. Many dogs <clears throat> uh, can, however be all the dogs at the kennel because once again we notice that the all is now given a distinction so many excludes the option of being all of the whole and many is a large number within the whole group that's being referenced but not every member ever it can never mean that it's every member of the group so all of a distinct group within the whole is many and that's that's what we have to recognize. So in in this discussion, we have to we have to realize that the texts of scripture that say the atonement was for many, that can never mean it was made for all people without distinction. It's not possible. 
And so the scripture that says that Christ's atonement was only for many becomes definitive and clear. And the ones that do say it was intended for all is referring to all in reference to the context. Um, so the oft-contended uh, Greek word uh, that's often or usually translated as all or every or every kind or all kinds um, are is the Greek word pos. And it has... Uh, Different variants of it uh, due to what's called the Greek declension, uh, whether it's neuter, um, uh, feminine, or masculine in its declension. So you have pas, pasa, pasan, uh, pan, panta, pantas, and, and pantan. So we'll look at the different uh, uses of it here in the New Testament. But uh, the, the term pas uh, in Greek... And uh, I'll just I'll just read it to you. I'll read Vine's definition here of it. It says radically means all used without the article. It means every or every kind or variety. Um, uh, it may signify uh, the highest degree when it's used by itself. It's used more as a noun, meaning like every one. Um, it can mean it also signifies either all or the whole. Uh, for example, you'll see it used with uh, um, in Ephesians two one. It's uh, it it's used with the term building and in, in, in reference to the whole building. Uh, it's talking about the church there in Ephesians two one. So let's just look at some of its usages in the New Testament um, in the ESV translation of the New Testament. The term pos is translated seven times as all kinds, um, whether it is with the definite article or not. Some of those cases are with the definite article and uh, and in uh, some other cases it's there's no definite article. We'll, we'll look at both instances. Um, and it's also translated as every kind five times. So 12 times um, in the New Testament, the term pos is translated to mean all kinds or every kind uh, or all categories. So the first place that we want to look at um, is uh, 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. And let me transition here so you guys can see the screen. Uh, let's see here. Let's scroll down. Okay. So... In 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, uh, we have here, let's read it in the, in the English here. Here we have in the ESV. It says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So if we look here at our uh, Greek text here, we have um, pantan. There's our, our word pas. Pantan, ton, kakan, which means it would literally literally render, because we have the article here, all the evil, all the evil. But if we just look at this in the context, it's for the love of money is the root of all the evil. 
So all evil comes from the love of money. Was um, Eve's sin in the garden of evil due to the love of money? No. So looking at it contextually here, we can see that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. All kinds of evil come from the love of money. So that's one example. Let's jump over here to Acts uh, 12. Or Acts, I'm sorry, Acts 10, verse 12. Let me validate. You guys can see that on the screen. Okay. Um, so it says here in the ESV, it says, In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. So... This is referring to Peter's vision when he saw the sheet come down full of all kinds of animals. Now, if we look here at the Greek text here, we have uh, panta te tetroposa, tetroposa, which means uh, four-legged uh, or four-footed uh, animals. That's where we get our word tetra, tetrapod from. So panta tetraposa which means all the uh, four-legged beasts or animals all four-legged beasts well so when the sheet was descended were all four-legged beasts in the sheet well that's highly unlikely so it was probably all kinds of four-legged animals was in the sheet. And if you notice, the text actually renders it that way, even though there is no word in here for kinds. It's just the term panta. We also see in um, Matthew 5, 11, <clears throat> we see it here uh, where Jesus is speaking um, in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, let's make sure you guys can see that. Okay, um, you can see, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name. So let's look at the, the text here. So here we have pan, which is, uh, uh, once again, uh, pos, the word pos. And we have here panoran, if I can say that right, panoran, which means evil. So we have all evil. So to literally render it, it says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all evil against you falsely on my account. So contextually, we could see here that that uh, they may not utter absolutely all evil against us falsely, but probably all kinds of evil against us. And that's why it renders it as all kinds. Notice how there is no article in this case. So we saw two previous instances. We had the definite article. And here we do not, but it's also rendered as all kinds. It carries that meaning. In Romans uh, 7, verse 8, we have another example of this. Um, 
we see here Paul is speaking about the uh, contention that exists between um, our renewed spiritual nature that has been brought to life by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and the sinful nature that we still have. And it says here, um, beginning here at verse uh, well, at verse 8, it says, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. <clears throat> so, if we look here, we have here pasan epithymian. Pasan epithymian. So we have all covetousness. Epithymian is covetousness. So, but sin seizing an opportunity through the command produced in me all covetousness. Well, <clears throat> it's likely that Paul did not experience every single uh, type of covetousness <clears throat> or every act of covetousness. No. It brought about in him all kinds of covetousness. So notice that it's rendered as all kinds. Let's go to one more. I think uh, we can see that this is a consistent uh, rendering. Uh, we can see here in James 3. Uh, let's pull this up. James, James 3, verse 7. <clears throat> we see here, For every kind of beast and a bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. So here he's talking about the tongue. But here he is <clears throat> saying here that uh, um, so uh, that every kind of beast, not every beast, but every kind of beast. And so this translation is not all kinds, but every kind. <clears throat> so we have here um, pasa. Gar, Physis, Therion, Pasa, Gar, Physis, Therion. So we have <clears throat> every kind of beast and and bird, uh, species of bird, but it's translated as every kind. Notice there's no article here. And this time it is translated as every kind. So now let's go to the contended text. <clears throat> and let's read it in context. Let's read it beginning at verse uh, at verse 1. Let's see if you guys can see this text. You might not. Let me transition uh, my screen here. And let's zoom out a little bit. Maybe I'll lower the text a little bit. There we go. Okay. So we can see here. Let's just let's read the whole thing. It says, "I ex uh, actually I've got the wrong translation up here. Let's pull up the ESV." Okay. So Paul is telling Timothy here. First of all, then. I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions be made for all people. And this here, all people, is pas, 
pontan anthropon. Pontan anthropon. If we look here at the Greek, we can see here pontan anthropon. Um, all people. Now he goes into defining who those all people are for kings and all who are in high positions. So he is demonstrating here that he's talking about all kinds of people. Here we, during this time that that Paul was was writing this to Timothy, he was in Ephesus, is that the church was beginning to be persecuted, and they were being persecuted by those in high positions, and by those who were kings and those who were rulers. And so he is urging uh, Timothy and the Ephesian church here to uh, to give supplications, prayers, and thanksgiving for all people, all kinds of people, even those who are persecuting you, even those who are in high positions that uh, you may think, well, they don't deserve my prayers. Uh, they don't, I don't want to pray for them. They're the ones that are hurting us. They're the ones who are, throwing us into prison they're the ones throwing us to the lions they're the ones throwing us into the into the ring uh uh the colosseum and so but he, paul is urging that that they pray for kings and all who are in high positions all kinds of people now if we notice here it's it's pontan anthropon it's just uh all People is literally rendered, but we saw repeated examples of how pos means all kinds, and we can see here even in the context that that's that's what is meant here by the term. It says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all. Here we have it again. This time we have pontas anthropos. You guys want to see it? Well, here we go. We have Pontas Anthropos, who desires all people, all kinds of people. We see in context here he was referring to all kinds of people uh, to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And then he goes on, we have to keep on going here, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the men, the man, Christ Jesus. So we see here that God desires all kinds of people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, this Jesus here is not the mediator of all men. He's only the mediator of the elect. He's only the mediator of those who believe and put their faith and trust in him. It's a limited mediation. Jesus is not mediating for the reprobate that is screaming out his hatred against God in hell. He's only mediating for those who repent and believe the gospel, for all believers, for all the elect of God. So <clears throat> we can see here that this verse here in 1 Timothy 2.4 does not carry the meaning that that God desires every single individual on earth uh, to be saved, but God had desires and elects people from all kinds of people, including those who were going were, were persecuting them, and this is why they need to pray for them. They need to pray for all kinds of people, including those who persecute them, 
because God is uh, the Savior of all kinds of people, not just Jews, uh, but also Gentiles, and also Gentiles that and, and those who are in authority. So we can also see an example of this in the Septuagint. So I want to look at uh, a text here in the Greek Septuagint. The Greek Septuagint is a uh, translation of the Old Testament that was uh, used by the New Testament writers. Uh, it was translated, I think, of around 200 years before the time of Christ, and a lot of many of the New Testament writers uh, quoted from it. So I just want to go ahead and take a look at another example here of of the term pas here being used. Up here we have the uh, the Hebrew text um, for this verse, and it's in Ezekiel 39, verse 20. And you, sh- and you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. So if we look down here at, at the, uh, the Septuagint, um, we see here um, this, let me drag this up a little bit further. Let's make sure that you guys can see this. Okay, should be able to see it. So here we have um, the word anabantan, which means um, which means to be mounted or to ride. Anabantan uh, giganta, which means giant. So anabanta, a mounted giant, um, and kai uh, panta. Here we have our pas word pas panta. Andre polemistan polemistan lege says Kyrios, Lord. And uh, polemistan, it means warrior. So we have literally rendered here, we have and, uh, we have Kai here, Anabantan, uh, mounted, giants, and all, Andre, men, uh, polemistan, warrior, says Kyrios, says Yahweh. So, Notice how it's rendered literally as all men warriors. All men warriors. But it's translated here as all kinds of warriors. Uh, Not all warriors, but it carries the meaning of all kinds of men warriors. So we can see in the Septuagint, we can see in the Greek New Testament, that repeatedly the term pos is translated as all kinds or every kind, depending upon the context. And so in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, it is referring to all kinds of men. So I don't want to get stuck in the weeds too much um, on this, but I think it is important and is a stumbling block for a lot of people um, is uh, some of these uh, there's there's a few verses. I, I will probably do an episode at some point on 
There's about uh, seven verses Arminians typically use to try to uh, to refute the clear biblical teaching of God's sovereignty in salvation. And so this was one of them uh, that I wanted to address, and I decided I will take care of it here. In um, uh, I'll take care of it here in uh, this particular episode on limited atonement. But let's keep on moving here. Um, we want to look at now the testimony in uh, Scripture about how uh, or who the atonement of Christ was intended for. And we see this first in what is often referred to as the gospel according to God. Um, And this is when God himself in the Old Testament is speaking of um, the coming Messiah and how he would carry the sins of his people and how he would atone for them and how uh, and and uh, what he was going to be like. Um, And we see this in Isaiah 53. It's just a beautiful, beautiful passage. Uh, It's a passage that we should uh, we should all memorize. Uh, It is just it's very beautiful. But let's begin at verse uh, 4 of Isaiah 53. And uh, we'll just uh, start here. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now notice here he's speaking here to God's people, and he's using the personal pronouns. He's borne our griefs and carried our our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Remember in uh, Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Notice here the reference in Isaiah 53 is to uh, the sheep of God. Uh, it's referring to us, we are like sheep. And we see Jesus uses this uh, many times. And we'll go to a few texts here. Um, it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So notice that God, the Lord, has laid upon Yahweh, has laid upon him the iniquity of us all and the pronoun us was just used previously. It says we are all like sheep. So notice that the iniquity of us all is referring to the sheep. The iniquity of the sheep has been laid upon him. Now, let's look in John chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. It says, Jesus answered them. He was speaking to the Pharisees and the Jews who did not believe. And he's telling them, he's explaining to them their unbelief and explaining to them why they do not believe him. So notice in John 10, verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So notice here very definitively that these unbelieving Jews and Pharisees were not among Christ's sheep. But we just saw in Isaiah 53 that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of his sheep. 
We notice also in the very same chapter in John 10, verse 11, Jesus earlier had said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Notice he's laying down his life specifically. He's atoning specifically for his sheep. He's not atoning for the goats. He's not atoning for these people that he just said, or he said a little bit later, that are not his sheep. He's saying he lays down his life for his sheep. In John ten fifteen, it says, Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. <clears throat> so going on, in verse 8 of Isaiah chapter 53, it says, By oppression and judgment he has taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? This is speaking of Jesus' death here. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. So here's Yahweh speaking. Here's God speaking. And he's saying <clears throat> that the coming Messiah was to be cut off for the transgression of my people, his people, the the children of God, those who belong to God. So let's let's look at what Jesus said in John chapter eight. <clears throat> and once again he's speaking to unbelieving Jews here, and he's he's once again telling them the reason that they don't believe in him in verse John 8, verse 44, it says, You are of your father, the devil. So notice that these are not the people of God. These are those who follow um, their uh, father, the devil. This is also in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Go ahead and read that parable. You'll, you'll see that at the end, Jesus explains the parable, and he says the wheat are those that are the children of God. And... And the terrors are those that are the children, I think it says, of the evil one. So then jumping down here to John 8, verse 47, it says, Whoever is of God, whoever is the people of God, hears the words of God. The reason that you do not hear them is you are not of God. He says this to the unbelieving Jews. So we see a correlation here. We see in Isaiah 53 that he is cut off for the transgression of God's people and then we see here very clearly in John 8 that Jesus tells the unbelieving Jews that they are not the people of God. They are of their father, the devil. And, uh, and he specifically tells them they are not of God. And that is the reason that they do not believe him. In Matthew chapter 1, verse uh, 21, it says, uh, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. This is the angel uh, uh, is this the? I think this is the angel speaking to uh, uh, Joseph, I believe, if I'm not mistaken here. Uh, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So we see here specifically that he is once again saving his people. This correlates once again with Isaiah 53, verse 8, where he is stricken for the transgressions of God's people. <clears throat> And uh, going on in Isaiah chapter 53, this becomes even more definitive. It says in verse 11, it says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the, right, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Okay, remember how we talked about earlier 
that many can never mean all without distinction. This very specifically says that he shall make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Notice the many that are accounted as righteous um, are also the ones that he bore their iniquities. So many cannot mean all without distinction. This cannot mean all people who have ever lived. It specifically defines it as a group that contains many. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, it says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So notice here, and this is something that the writer of Hebrews brings out, but he bears the sins of many and he makes intercession for the transgressions. This is the high priestly work, the work of the high priest. He makes a sacrifice for many, just like in uh, Leviticus 16, the high priest atoned for the sin of only the people of God, the children of Israel. And he interceded with them before God, before the mercy seat. And in the same way, Jesus bears the sins of many, not all without distinction, but only many, and makes intercession for these. So it's a unified work. He offers, makes an offering, and he intercedes for the same group. Uh, Let's go into the New Testament, and let's see how definitive the New Testament is in telling us that um, <clears throat> he laid down his life as a ransom for many. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 28, it says, Even as the Son of Man came not to serve, but to be ser- but to serve, came not to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. In Matthew 26, verse 28, this is when he is ordaining, he's, he's actually, uh, this is the Last Supper with the uh, his disciples, and uh, he says this very, very clearly. It says, for this is the blood, this is my blood of the covenant, which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Mark 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, Mark 14, verse 24. This is once again a synoptic of the uh, Last Supper. That is uh, also recorded in Matthew. And he said to him, this is, my, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Once again, many cannot mean all without distinction. It cannot mean all people. His, boor, his blood is specifically poured out uh, for many. <clears throat> we also see in Hebrews 9.28, <clears throat> and this is so clear. It says here, so Christ being offered once to bear the sins of many, Once again, not all without distinction, but for many will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly uh, are waiting for him. Matthew 5.19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So um, Paul here in Romans chapter 5 is not saying that um that that uh, Adam's sin didn't bring uh didn't make all people sinners but he's defining the two different groups there's a group of many that are only in Adam and 
Adam's disobedience uh, makes them sinners, and that's all they are. They're only sinners. Um, it's a group of many. And then there's another group of many that by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So a group of many are made righteous before God, while another group of many are only sinners before God. Um, and God demonstrates his justice to them, and the other group, God demonstrates his mercy to them. His undeserved mercy and grace he pours out to this group of many. Not all people, but many. Um, a text that I think is just really uh, definitive in this discussion is Colossians 2, verse 14. It says, uh, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So, if uh, the Arminian position has to hold that Christ's sacrifice was only potential, it only made it possible it, it made uh, the potentiality that people could be saved if they meet certain conditions on their own. But according to Colossians 2.14, that the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, our failure to keep God's law, to keep his legal demands, that record of debt that stands against us, he nailed it to the cross. He canceled it at the cross. So, that's not a potential. That's not a possible salvation. That is an actual salvation. That goes with the word atonement. An actual atonement was made at the cross. Sins were expiated at the cross. And so if he has canceled the record of debt that stood against us at the cross, and that's what happened at the cross, and if he did this for all people, if his atoning work was for all people who have ever lived, and not all kinds of people, but all people who have ever lived, then that means that all people will be saved because it says here very specifically that his act on the cross canceled the record of debt that was against us. So if his atoning work was only done for a specific group of many, then this verse works perfectly. And he actually accomplished their salvation on the cross. Um, The, the really the point is that it's it's either you either have that Christ died for nobody or Christ died for somebody um, no he, if if we have that he had he made he sacrificed a possible uh, salvation he was so that men could possibly be saved then he didn't actually die for anyone in particular on the cross um, but if he actually died for a specific group of people, then he actually expiated and canceled, and he actually died for somebody. So he either died for nobody, which would be the Arminian view, nobody in particular, or in the Reformed Calvinistic view, he actually died specifically uh, and canceled uh, the record of debt that stood against a, a, uh, a specific people. In Hebrews uh, 10.14, I think is also just a definitive um, text. It says in Hebrews 10.14, it says, uh, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So if his offering was made for all people, then all people would be perfected for all time. So 
his offering perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Um, the rebel in hell um, screaming out his hatred against God is not being sanctified by God. Christ's atoning work did not apply to him. Um, in Hebrew or in Romans 6 verse 6, Paul says here, For we know that the old, old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we, can, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So notice that our old self was actually crucified with Christ. So can the person in hell who hates God, can he say that he was crucified with Christ and that the body of sin um, was brought to nothing because of being crucified with Christ and that he was no longer enslaved to sin because he was crucified with Christ? Um, I, I just I don't believe that you can stay consistent with these texts and hold to that position. We can also see in Revelations 5 verse 9, it says here, uh, and this goes with that Christ died for all kinds of people. In Revelation 5 verse 9, it says, They sang a new song and sang, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. So notice that his blood ransomed a people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. God saves all kinds of people. He graciously saves all kinds of people from all the peoples of the world. Um, he is so gracious and merciful. Um, in uh, Acts 20, verse 28, it says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So notice that Christ's blood actually obtained the church of God. He purchased it. He purchased the church of God with his blood. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here we see the imputed righteousness. We see our sin placed upon Christ and his righteousness placed upon us. Now, if that was done for all people at the cross, if he made him to be sin who knew no sin, if he made him to be the sin of every single person who ever lived, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, and then his righteousness is given to all people, then all people are saved. But we see the imputed righteousness of Christ is given to a particular people. It's all those who would ever believe and trust in Christ, and all those who would ever believe and trust in Christ do so because God has predestined them, he has called them, he has justified them, and he is glorifying them. Um, we see Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17. Um, he specifically says here in verse 2, it says, Since you have given him, speaking of uh, the Son of Man himself, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So notice Jesus here is saying that he is giving eternal life to all that the Father has given him. 
This is, goes back to John 6. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and he who comes to me I will never cast out. Um, in uh, John seventeen nine, it says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. Jesus saying here is not praying for the world. And here world could not mean um, every single person who has ever lived. It would have to mean the world of the unbelievers. Um, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So he's praying specifically for the group of people that have been given to him by the Father. Um, in John seventeen twenty four, still in his high priestly prayer, Father, I desire they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Notice here, once again, the group of people that have been given to Jesus by the Father. And that is who he desires um, that they would uh, be with me where I am and to see his glory. It's those that the Father has given him. In John six thirty seven, I already quoted this, but uh, it says, All the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John six thirty nine. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So notice that all that are given to him by the Father, he raises up on the last day. And he loses none of them. Jesus never loses. If you've been given by the Father to the Son, he will never lose you. It's his work that keeps you in him, and not your own work. John 6:44 it says no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him on the last day. So notice here that no one has the ability no one can no one has the ability to come to Jesus to come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And notice that the drawing here of the father brings them to the Son, and all those that are drawn by the Father are raised on the last day by Christ. That has both the inability of man here, it has irresistible grace, it has unconditional election happening here, and we see the resulting glorification and the perseverance also here. This verse just encompasses almost all of the doctrines of grace. No one can come to me. There's total depravity. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. Here we have irresistible grace and unconditional election. Um, and I will raise him on the last day. Uh, we see here the perseverance of the saints. Uh, let's uh, look at some quotes. Um, Charles Hodge uh, says, The sin of Adam did not make the condemnation of all men merely possible. It was the ground of their actual condemnation. So the righteousness of Christ did not make the salvation of men merely possible. It secured the actual salvation of those for whom it was wrought. That's Charles Hodge. So Christ's sacrifice actually saved people. It actually accomplished the salvation. And we see federal headship here. We see Christ is the federal head of many, Romans 5, and Adam is the federal head of many. Um, and if we don't like 
the federal headship of Adam. If we don't like that, that Adam's sin made the condemnation of all men, brought condemnation to all men, which is exactly what Hebrews 5 or Romans 5 says, that the sin of Adam brought condemnation to all men. If we don't like that, then we can't like the federal headship of Christ either. But it seems like most of the time people object to their condemnation in Adam, but they don't seem to have any problem. They say that's not fair, but they don't say it's it's uh, it's unfair that God justified them through the atoning work of Christ and saved them uh, unmeritoriously. That's not fair either. Uh, <clears throat> so if if you don't like the federal headship of Adam, you can't you can't like the federal headship of Jesus either if you're going to be consistent. Uh, let's close today's uh, episode with a quote from uh, Charles Spurgeon. He kind of wraps it up for us here. Uh, he says, uh, The Arminians say Christ died for all men. Ask them what they mean by it. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of all men? They say, No, certainly not. We ask them the next question. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of any man in particular? They answer no. They are obliged to admit this if they are admit this if they are consistent. They say no. Christ has died that any man may be saved if and then follow certain conditions of salvation. Now, who is it that limits the death of Christ? Why you? You say that Christ did not die so to as infallibly secure the salvation of anybody. We beg your pardon. When you say we limit Christ's death, we say, no, my dear sir, it is you that do it. We say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. You are welcome to your atonement. You may keep it. We will never renounce ours for the sake of it. And that's Charles Spurgeon. So we'll uh, we'll end with that. Um, hopefully you enjoyed uh, this particular episode. Hopefully it was helpful to you to understand some of the issues. Um, join us uh, next week. And uh, we will continue. We'll talk about irresistible grace. And uh, have a great rest of your weekend. God bless. Don't you know that the unjust Will not inherit God's kingdom And through Adam's offense Condemnation came to man And so